Boy, oh boy. Folks, it's that time of year again. I'm sure we've all felt that cha magical change in the atmosphere. No, it's not the latest California wildfire. Am I right, folks? It's not that. It's not the runaway greenhouse effect. Yuck, yuck. No, it is the coming of the new American school year, the end of summer, By certainly by the time I've released this, the end of summer. Um, for I think for a lot of K through 12 in the American school system, school has probably been back like a week or two now. Um, colleges and universities haven't quite been back yet, but they will be pretty soon. And we can all feel it. Like I said, we can all feel it. It is, like, it is, like I said, the most magical time of the year. All those lazy teachers and kids, they're finally going to get back to work after a three-month-long vaca three vacation. Like, what the heck is that about? You know, what the heck is that about, folks? It, it really is time to get these people back to work. Get them back at school. You know, we're all vaccinated. We all have our masks now. What are they so afraid of? Get them all back in school. Get everyone back to work. And, you know... Uh, there's so many things to love about this time. All those wonderful back-to-school discounts on, like, markers and pens, notebooks, all that stuff we love. All that wonderful seven, 8 in the morning, 7 in the morning traffic jams on all our, you know, all our commutes. You know, getting into those metro stations, all those bus lines to get to the university. We all love it, folks. It, it, it It's the smell of productivity that's in the air. The smell of learning. The smell of people becoming better citizens. That's what we're all sensing, you know. It, 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 God, I love it so much. I love uh, school. I love education. Uh, American education system, United States educational system, the best educational system in the world. You know, and that's what that's what this podcast is about. My name is Axel. I am a teacher. I am a tutor. I have taught uh, students of all ages in a number of different topics, usually within English. What um, in the American school system we know as in the English subject, um, and it's also a podcast just generally about education as a concept in America, uh, worldwide, uh, how it works as a system in America, where its institutions are, you know, local problems, or just whatever I could read about that's about education. That's what we talk about here, or even kind of like tangentially related. That's kind of what I talk about here. And so, what am, what are we going to talk about? In this first little episode of this new podcast that, you know, I don't even know what the podcast is going to be called. I don't know anything other than I just have some things I want to talk about to myself, <laughs> right? How all, how good ideas and good enterprises start. Well, what I want to talk about is, you know, the biggest, some would call it a problem. I wouldn't really call it that. But many of like the most smart people writing about it would call it a very serious problem. And it's academic dishonesty in our schools, in K through 12, in our universities, cheating folks, just the absolute scourge, the epidemic, the true, ep the real epidemic, right? We had COVID, there's going to be monkeypox, but really the biggest problem is all those cheaters in our schools, in our universities who are, you know, they're, they're really like criminals. They're stealing grades from other hardworking students. They're debasing, degrading, and delegitimizing our education system, our schools, as places where we go to learn and to give our best effort, effort um, as students and teachers, it's all—it's it's such a huge quote-unquote problem. Now, I mean, you—I'm—I'm I'm being sarcastic. I'm being an asshole. I'm being a sarcastic asshole. Uh, I actually don't really care about cheating. I don't think it's a problem. But well, what's actually true is that to the amount of people who do think it's a huge problem. Um, 
and what this first podcast little episode I have no idea how long it's going to be this introduction is probably going to be like half an hour <laughs> we'll see how the rest of it goes um there's really going to be like not really a history of cheating that would go all the way back to the dawn of education as a concept but just a short history on how people have researched cheating talked about cheating and the different solutions quote-unquote solutions to cheating now they're actually for, to me there are some pretty simple solutions to it but we'll get into that and so really what this podcast the next couple of episodes of this podcast as far as like cheating as a topic is concerned is really the story of from the 90s into about now post-pandemic uh, the post-pandemic educational environment of how people have talked about cheating what students have thought about cheating and as I'm, as i will say later the total defeat of every single solution other than a couple very narrow and insufficient and completely useless solutions, honestly. Solutions that don't really solve anything, you know, as you could expect from an American institution, right? And so before I get into all that, I do just want to say, like, what do I mean when I say it's not a problem? Well, I mean exactly that. I don't care about cheating really i didn't care about it when i was teaching at colleges i didn't care about it really as a student i don't really care now that i'm doing more like private tutoring and stuff like that i still don't really care if my students really cheat in their regular schools to me i'm not bothered by it i don't really consider it the way which you'll see a lot of the authors that were covering this episode i don't really consider it a moral problem at all I don't consider it the way some other authors think of it as like a social problem really that much at all. I don't consider it as some other authors still would say as like something that delegitimizes the institutions of education or educational system. I think they delegitimize themselves without help from students cheating. And why do I think that? You might be sitting there wondering, you know, how could you, Axel, as a teacher, as someone who has studied education for a while, presumably, who has been in education, who knows a lot of teachers. That's me. That's me saying that. Because, you know, you wouldn't know that stuff about me. Like, why would I take a position like that? Why wouldn't I care that much about cheating, right? Wouldn't, like, assuming who cheated in my class, wouldn't that totally delegitimize my class? Wouldn't that completely put put to waste the efforts of the students who were taking my class honestly, wouldn't that, if they'd ever got out that students were cheating, if those honest students were looking at those students who are cheating and saw that they were successful at cheating, saw that I wasn't taking them seriously, wouldn't that destroy their experience in the classroom? Whether it was in college, whether it was in tutoring, whether when, it, when I was teaching K through 12, like wouldn't, isn't that just a huge, massive problem that every teacher, not just you, Axel, but that every teacher needs to take super, super seriously? And even against all those facts, even knowing other teachers, even knowing like how te- how catching a cheater feels like to other teachers, even knowing like you know how it feels to be that honest student who watches other students cheat and get away with it and being discouraged by it in that sense, I would still take all of that. I would take all that experience, all those feelings, all those perspectives. I would still come down on my position here in this episode that I'm taking this podcast episode. Uh, of cheating not being a big deal something that i really don't care about i really don't think it's a problem really on its own honestly it's for me to think about oh my god all those cheaters this epidemic of cheating 
I just don't think about it. I don't think about it, and to me, it's not serious. Now, why don't I? Why do I think that? Why do I take this position when the dominant opinion, at least going back the last thirty years, as you'll see, has been that it is so serious that we need to take every measure we can to prevent it, to persecute it, to punish it. And but before I go into why I'm you know, going against the dominant grain here. In terms of my stance toward cheating, I do just want to say really quickly that when I talk about cheating, I'm really not talking about like crimes. I do just want to say that right away. So I'm not suggesting that like you know you commit actual crimes, right? Don't like bribery or threatening people, threatening other students, or threatening teachers. If you're a student yourself, like don't <laughs> you know <laughs> don't bribe or threaten your teachers or other students to get a good grade. So, if you're a teacher listening to this and you see that shit, you know you should put a stop to it, right? Put a stop to it, uh, call it out, uh, go through the proper procedures, all that kind of stuff. If for no other reason than like to save yourself, like for real, like you, you're thinking from just like a, a covering your ass standpoint. If you're a teacher and a student is bribing you for some kind of favor, like you shouldn't take that deal because then you become a loose end. You become tied to this kid's fate. If things go south for him, for that student who bribed you, they're gonna rat you out, and then you're fucked. So yeah, uh, again, cover your ass. I would say the same thing about like being threatened, right? You have a student threatening you. You know, uh, a, a pro- big problem for especially for female teachers, right? Dealing with their male students, like don't don't let that shit go. Report it. Clean your hands of it. I, I I'm coming out hard against that, right? Uh, so th- this is a, this podcast is anti-threatening people we're anti-bribery i'm taking a brave strong stance against those things for legal reasons i'm also anti-getting sued anti-getting sued because i recommended that people do crimes so disclaimer i am not suggesting or recommending that you do that you do crimes all right you as a student please do not do crimes and if you do do not come back to this podcast and be like oh i got it mr axel told me to do this I got it from that podcast. Don't ever do that, okay? So, no, I'm not talking about crimes. I'm talking about the victimless crime, quote-unquote crime, of passing a class however you can without resorting to violence or financial fraud, right? Quote-unquote cheating, quote-unquote academic dishonesty. So I am, an, I am a cheating apologist in part because, you know, for real, you know, real talk, if any of you were normal students at any point of your lives, you've probably cheated, and you know why I've cheated, and I've known why. Most of the times when I cheated, I understood why I did it. You know, it doesn't matter how big or small the assignment was you cheated on. You know, It doesn't matter how much you cheated on that assignment or that test, whether you only did it once or if you did it throughout the whole semester or whether you did, only did it in one class or you made, a whole, you, know, you made a whole fucking academic career around it. It doesn't even matter if you knew you did it or not. Right? It doesn't matter if you knew you cheated or not. And that's, that's, that's something we'll get into as this series continues, this series on cheating continues, right? Whether you even know what you're doing is actually cheating, according to your teachers. So even if you knew you were doing it, you probably did it. And like I said, in those cases where you knew you did it, you know why you did it. You know, school is stressful at all levels. And everything around you is a constant battle for your time and attention. If you're an older student, whether in high school or like, you know, really deep into your grad school or something, you know, you're in your 20s, you're in grad school, you're really deep into it, you know, you might be a parent, you might have a spouse, right? You might have a family that is dependent on you in some way, they're dependent on you working, 
And you're probably getting that degree because you want to get a better job so you can support them better. You can support your family better. And you're probably, you know, like I said, you're probably working. You probably are or were in a daily just awful struggle and grind for your life and well-being and the lives of well and the lives and well-beings of other people, right? And even if you're like a young student, so you're not working, you're not a fucking adult. Let's say you're a kid in a in like fourth grade or something. Well, you know, first of all, if you're if you're a kid in fourth grade listening to this, this podcast isn't for you, right? So obviously, by listening to this podcast, you know you're you're cooler than all your classmates. You're 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 epic. You know, one day I hope you'll grow up to be like an uh, uh, an awesome anarcho-communist type, right? And also, I would also suggest you know uh, check into the climate change stuff. If you 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 don't have a you, if you haven't had a teacher that is like uh, made you wise to that, yeah, check in on uh, climate change. Google climate change and uh, see what's up with that. It'll be really important. It'll be real important as you get old. Yeah, so you, you just think about that. Anyway, even for you, this rhetorical awesome ten year old, you know, school is stressful and you have a lot of other priorities. You're trying to enjoy your youth. You have friends, I hope. You're trying to spend time with them, whether you know they're in school, they're online. You want to spend time socializing, you know, develop interests, all that shit. You know, become a, like a well-rounded person. And just like with older and adult students, family is pressuring you in certain ways. So you're not supporting people, but you know, you have parents. You have people who are in charge of you. Your parents, right? Let's say you even have both of your parents. You know, they're both there, breathing down your neck, expecting you to do well in your classes. Because school is supposed to be your quote-unquote job as a kid. I'm sure we've all heard that, haven't we? I've certainly have heard that from my parents, especially if you're an American, I would imagine. You know, they want you to get into a good university because they want you to see, they want to see you get a good quote-unquote real job. That's the whole point of doing well in kindergarten all the way through high school. You're supposed to go to a good university and then you're going to get a real job, right? And like... a fuck when i just said that like i just said you know if you had both parents i mean if you're living with a single parent or if you don't have any parents you're an orphan you're living with rel- relatives are taking care of you like there's probably all sorts of other things going on in your life that are way more important than listening to your teacher and doing what they say exactly how they say it exactly the way they want you to do it you know, no kid is free from all of that, from all of that. Even those privileged kids who have both of their parents who live pretty comfortably, there are pressures on every single kid, right? Now, now, we don't all feel it equally, but those pressures are there for everybody. And that really is the crux of it to me. That is, this is a big reason. This is one of the big reasons why I don't take, I don't take cheating really seriously, right? Now, if you are poor, if you're poor, if you're working class, no matter how old you are, there are just so many other things that need your attention in a much more urgent way than school, right? If you're really down on the ladder, on the social ladder, like if you're living in your, in your fucking car or your parents' car or in like uh, those spontaneous shanty towns that the homeless live in, right? They're made of cardboard and uh, uh, laminated iron, cor- 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 what a, the, wavy, the wavy like sheet metal, I don't know what the fuck you call it, then... If that's you, then there is a daily fight every day just to survive. If you're doing a little better than that, if you're a little higher on the ladder, you know, you, you live in like a house, you know, you're still exposed maybe to like a violent neighborhood. Maybe every day is like a battle to get like resources to get good food. You know what I mean? You're not sure, maybe you're not sure every day if you're going to have like some real solid meals or clean water. I mean, certainly, right, 
being able to have like cheap school material materials, you know, pens and notebooks and stuff, even making sure you have like paper or like a calculator somewhere, if maybe being able to have like a phone with all those things, a calculator and a calendar and all that stuff and an internet connection, right? Just being able to make sure you have an internet connection, which if your household, you know, isn't making enough to afford a private one, you're depending on a library or an internet cafe or a friend's house or relative's house uh, to sort of do everything in terms of like an internet connection. And like I said, if you're older, you have a job because you have rent and you need to eat. So for gigantic swaths of the population, my point in this speech here is that every month, every week, every day is a logistical fight to make sure we have enough things we need to be able to survive. Food and water and heating and you know whatever. Whatever it is that we need. So all of that is way more urgent and important than making an honest effort at school. And before most of us start cheating, we do try to find ways to work ethically, quote-unquote ethically, within the class to save ourselves some trouble, right? Ask, you know, we ask the teacher for help, you ask your friends for help, you go to the administration for help, you know, whatever, whatever help might be in your situation, you get deadline extensions, you ask for some tutoring, some time, you know, some extra time in the library after school to do work because, you know, there's internet there, there's peace and quiet there. Like, I mean, it's just as long as we're talking about things you ask the school to give you, like, fuck, just getting a real lunch so that you're not constantly hungry throughout the whole day. You can actually concentrate because you can't have it, like, made at, you can't have your lunch made at home beforehand. And like the line to get to the school to get the school lunch for people who have some kind of voucher or you know they're part of some program or maybe not even like they're not even may not even be on welfare. It's just like the, the fucking line is always too long. You can't get like a real meal on time in that fucking forty minutes you have to actually eat lunch in a K through twelve or at a university. You're just so busy between work and school writing essays that you don't find time to like eat. You know, if you can, you know, we're talking about um, universities and colleges, you, know, you can drop the class, you can take the F, try again next year. If you're K through 12, you know, you do that too. You, you go to summer school, try again next year. But there's all sorts of problems with that in terms of in university and college, financial aid, if you're getting it, your academic standing uh, throughout all levels of school, you know, all sorts of those kinds of problems, those kinds of like bureaucratic and record problems that haunt you throughout the rest of your young life. You know, you try to navigate all of that before you're like, fuck it. I'm just going to do what makes all, what makes this all easy. You know, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to take, I'm going to cut corners because I've, I've given an honest effort. I've tried my best to work within the system and I just can't anymore. It's time to make this easy. And Every school and institution of higher learning, certainly every re most researchers who study this kind of stuff, make this seem like a choice about, you know, ethics and like the tragedy of choosing to do something so clearly awful, you know, the tragedy of, of moral failure. And most people who write about this or, you know, they opine about it, they write in a column about it, they research it, they do that from that perspective too. This ethical and moral panic. What 
almost all of them fail to even sort of take into account is the totalizing nature of school and universities in our daily lives, right? And the way that you as the student and we as a society are just supposed to take that as a given about life. That every day for obviously all children and teenagers, but also for, you know, I would imagine a lot of college students, most cohorts of college students, that the number one priority every day and the number one concern of every day is, what do I need to do for school? What's in my homework that I need to get done for tomorrow? What reading do I have to do? What fucking obnoxious Google Classroom module do I have to complete and comment on for five points uh, before the end of the week? You know, schools and universities don't usually say this out loud, but this is the assumption they work on when they communicate as an institution with parents and with students, that they are just supposed to be the number one thing going on in your life. So ultimately, the reason why they work is, the reason why universities, institutions, certain kinds of people, they work on this assumption is because society, and certainly American society, and probably across most places in the world, has made schools and universities, you know, the institution of education in general, the primary mode of social and class mobility, particularly for working class and poor people. But in our fucking desperate age, in our desperate times where things are getting worse objectively and they absolutely fucking feel like it too, what schools and universities, what education offers people, again, especially the poor and working class, is safety from downward class mobility. It's protection from being homeless in your 20s and 30s. So of course you need to make school and homework and grades and all that shit the number one thing you need to think about because nothing else will even make you the promise of being safe from the potential fall down the social ladder. You know, maybe your life sucks right now. You know, you, you, you have to work a dog shit job for hours upon hours every day, every week for garbage pay and it's all barely enough. You, you're barely scraping by. But you know... Think about this. You could be homeless, right? You could be homeless. And if you don't have a good degree in some, I don't know, some shit, then that's what you're, that's where you'll end up. You'll be, you'll, you'll end up homeless if you don't get that degree. Now, if you're already homeless, like, you know, more and more college and university students are becoming and more and more K through 12 students are becoming, well, a degree in some dumb shit is the only way you're ever going to not be homeless, and let's say you're a little more comfortable. You know, maybe you, you know, you think of yourself as middle class when you take a real look at your life. You know, you're not worrying about where your next meal is coming from or anything like that. Um, well, the message to you is take a look at all those homeless people on the other side of town. Take a look at all those guys who have to do Uber and, or, or work at the fucking Walmart to, to get by on minimum wage on fucking four or six hours every day. Now, if you don't want to be like that, you need to get a degree in some shit. You know, so get those grades up, qualify for a scholarship or financial aid to get those tuition fees down. And once you're in college, make sure you're still keeping those grades up because you don't want to be kicked out of your scholarship or your aid or, you know, the contract you have with your parents or anything else like that. Anything else that good grades... Um, earn for you and that's just simple reality right i'm not i'm not saying anything crazy there that's that's just life that's life as a student at all ages and levels and 
I would say, we're talking about students at all ages and levels, that's the truth, that's the truth, that's the reality for the vast majority of all students, except like the most elite class of students, the most elite class of people in American society. You know, their kids are going to grow up and, you know, they're always going to have money and power anyway, no matter how much they fuck about in college, you know, with college, how what kind of grades they get, what kind of degree they end up getting, whatever. They're always going to be rich. They're always going to be elite. There simply isn't enough time for the rest of us to approach every single class at any level of education with the time you need to understand the subject in a completely honest and open-minded way. Yet schools and universities have you act like you are, like you are giving full effort on every single class because that's part of navigating education that's part of navigating your school and getting the help you need when you ask for it and in that conflict that conflict between acting like you have you're giving a solid effort all the time when you're at school and the reality of having to make cuts and having to make decisions about your attention and time something has to give you need to make a decision about whether paying rent, eating a decent meal, making sure you know other people in your household or in your family can have decent meals and a roof over their heads, having a bare minimum healthy social life, whether that's what you want to do, that's what you have to do, or whether being a good student, being a good quote-unquote academic citizen, whatever the fuck, and actually trying to understand what your classes are talking about, writing a good paper for the current essay unit is what you have to do. And of course, just as a Seven of Nine said once on Star Trek Voyager, the worst Star Trek, cheating is often more efficient. You know, you can steal money and food, I guess, but that's, you know, that's way more dangerous. And more people are watching, right? More people are watching for people trying to steal their money and their food. You know, cheating in your class is just way more logistically, operationally easy to pull off. You know, and you'll probably get in less trouble, depending on what you're doing. So the question is not really, like, to get right down to it, the question really isn't why do students cheat and how can we stop them? The better question is, why is it that more students don't cheat? And how can schools and universities change what they're doing to incentivize cheating less? You know, maybe we'll start answering that too later on, once we're done with our history lesson. Uh, but anyway, so the whole point of all I'm, just, I'm, all I'm saying there is that that's the baseline I want to start with before we talk about like the rest of what we're going to be talking about in this video. You know, I'm, I'm going to be building on that baseline with every video because like this is... We're talking about the intersection of education and schools with society, and even in this lawn ass like introduction, we're not getting to every single important aspect of that. <clears throat> so even just within this, ser this series on academic dishonesty, we're always going to be coming back to what I'm saying right now. Um, but what is the spine of this series on academic dishonesty? Well, I'm going to look at a bunch of different articles and opinions. And, you know, all that from about over the last 15 years, I think I said earlier, like about the 90s to throughout the 2000s and the post-pandemic age. And what we're trying to see is where universities and schools have twisted and turned and trying to do anything to stop students from cheating, except for actually prioritizing the students' material needs 
above their scholastic ones. Instead of ever actually wondering or attempting to make sure that every student has this baseline, bare minimum, decent life so that they can actually try and focus on school. And we're also going to be talking about how in taking those twists and turns, universities and schools, the education system, have helped create a really shitty education system, modern day education system, like even shittier than it used to be. So the the solution for all of this, the solution they're always coming up with, is to look at the student body as a chronically unethical, almost criminal-like group of people that at all times needs to be policed and monitored to make sure that they don't overstep the, you know, ultimately arbitrary boundaries of, you know, educational conduct and academic dishonesty and all that stuff. And to that end, they think they convince themselves that they must open the doors for big tech to come in, invade the privacy of the student body from admission, when they apply to go to a school, to every submission of every assignment, every assignment and test, you know, then to turn teachers into cops, and to transfer. All right, so whenever we have to talk about cheating, we always have to think about, at the very least, the technology that's available at the time. And it's completely absurd nowadays to talk about cheating academic dishonesty without talking about you know, smartphones or laptops, computer, or any, anything to do with the internet, right? But I want to take you back to a time, a land before time, uh, the age of talking dinosaurs, uh, where these conversations weren't about, you know, uh, downloading the Uber of cheating apps or whatever that would be called, Chegg or something, um, and then like getting some Cambodian immigrant gig worker to deliver some essay you bought off the dark web or something. You, you, you're hiding your traffic with a VPN because you're, you're just that afraid of being caught. You know, this, so none of that is going on. This is a time where all those words are complete gibberish, meaningless. Let's go back to this utopian golden age. This is the 90s. I remember way back. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is on. So is Frasier. Seinfeld. Just a couple of my favorite shows. So, some other shows, I guess, were on. Okay, look, I, I okay, look, I didn't, I didn't really do a whole lot of background cultural research here. I mean, if you're the kind of person who's listening to this kind of podcast, you probably know what this time is about in broad strokes, right? So it's that magical time between the fall or the coming fall of the Soviet Union, but before the war on terror. It's the Fukuyama end of history. Now, speaking personally, my parents meet, my parents meet in California in 91. I'm born in 93. So it's, you know, a very optimistic time, right? Uh, well, I mean, optimistic if, you know, you're, you're rich or middle class and white. You know, it's a great time for, for you guys. Uh, there is a spike in violent crime and property crime in the early 90s everywhere in the country, but it those rates plummet afterwards and throughout the mid to late 90s. So crime rates were always falling in the most, like, infamous dangerous cities like you know in the bay area places like oakland and richmond la obviously throughout la county more south in california yet a very insidious narrative about black crime crime by non-white people in general is coming into its modern current day form right we don't even have to talk about things like the rodney Keene riots and all the horrible discourse that that generates in the decade after but you probably know what i mean right 
the super predators and all that. And eventually the government reacts to, the, to all this discourse with the passing of the Clinton crime bill, which, you know, is uh, great. You know, it's done a lot of great things for uh, black people, non-white people. It's awesome. Uh, uh, slash S. You know, I remember a lot of, you know, speaking as a uh, Latino man, I remember a lot of similarly insidious narratives about Spanish-speaking immigrants and their children starting to fester during these times too. Um, you know, the Mexican hordes jumping the fence, being all those beaners and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, of course, the most poisonous, violent myths are being made about black people. Um, at the same time, the economy appears to be working out. It appears to be, you know, a economic golden age for America. Again, you know, that's true if you're white and at least middle class. You know, home ownership is going up. You know, this is before the, the financial crash in 2008. And the people who are owning those houses are also making more money than homeowners in generations past. Now, if you're, if you're like a poor category of person, or if you're not owning a house, like you rent an apartment or, you know, rent a room, whatever you're doing, um, things are actually getting kind of worse throughout the 90s. It actually gets harder for you to get a house throughout the 90s and you're making less money once the decade's over. But for that population of people that can afford to send their kids in their households to school, to college, and who eventually go on to become academics, life looks like it's getting better all over the nation. And so it's also a time before the ubiquitous ownership of cell phones and laptops and other such devices. It's even way before a time before uh, where there is ubiquitous internet access everywhere. If we can, you can even imagine life like that. A lot of people have email addresses. That's definitely a thing starting in the early 90s, probably even before the 90s. Um, certainly if you're a professor in a university, probably if you're a student, um, you have an email address. But almost everyone is getting their news from the television, their local, uh, their local tel- news television station, their local radio station, the local newspaper, and also, you know, from, like, talking to people around them about, like, what's going on. You know, if you wanted to look up a random piece of information, you'd have to, I mean, God, depending on how rich you were, you could get a, a real fucking physical encyclopedia. You remember that? You remember the people who would go, like, door-to-door selling fucking encyclopedia sets? That was a big sitcom joke in the 90s you know if you were if you had enough money you'd have a series of a certain brand of encyclopedia in your house and of course i mean you're thinking about that like you have to update that encyclopedia set every so often because you know, information's changing all the time <laughs> if uh so you know the uh, that that was fun a fun time of buying encyclopedias otherwise you know if you, that wasn't you you have to go to like a public library and look that shit up and if you were a student at a school, like, you know, a K through 12 or a university or whatever, you'd go to the school library if you wanted to look something up, you had to know. So cell phones and laptops and the various ways that they existed in American society during the 90s, you know, they were big, ugly, bulky pieces of shit. You know, culturally, if you had a cell phone or a laptop, that was usually a sign you were a kind of like successful business class of person. It's even a little gauche. Um in a cultural sense, honestly, like I remember episodes from like the, Fre- you know, speaking of television, the Fresh Prince and Frasier where characters would get cell phones or laptops and it was treated like, who the fuck does this guy think he is? Fucking big roller over here. So there's certain cell phones and laptops certainly are not avenues of learning or information like they are now. 
right? And so this begins to change even before the end of the 90s. And in fact, I did read in some papers about there being like computer repositories of things like old tests and textbooks, but we don't have our modern understanding of how technology influences our knowledge and education until about, you know, I want to say 2005. About it. We don't read, our modern age is not really created until that time. And so it's against this backdrop that I want to talk about what, you know, all those silly gooses in academia are up to, you know, how they do research into cheating and all that shit. You know, it's, it's ubiquitous across researchers in this field before the 90s. So before the 90s, most researchers into cheating believe that cheating is basically a crime. Or at least it's on the same spectrum of behaviors and psychology as crime. And of course, by crime, right, you know, you're not made to think like uh, tax fraud or whatever. Um, you're meant to think of things like, you know, dealing drugs, mugging people on the street, pickpocketing, breaking, people's into, breaking into people's homes, that kind of stuff, right? And the students are basically criminals. So for the decades before the 90s, research into why students cheat really fo focused on um, to the near total exclusion of any other factors, like what, what a future scholar will describe as, quote, individual predispositions to cheat, unquote. So you can hear that, you can read that, and immediately know what that means. It's like, do men cheat more than women? Do people with certain types of personalities cheat more than others? There's a lot of type A, type B shit uh, in, all, in a lot of these older papers and in, paper, in some papers throughout the 90s. Like, what types of mental health conditions influence the disposition to cheat, right? So basically, like, you know, thinking that people with mental health problems are more likely to be criminals or are more likely to, you know, be a bad person, be a bad boy. Do students who come into the university with lower grade point averages cheat more often? So, you know, criminals, you know, they're stupid. And just like a cheater would be stupid. I mean, that that's honestly the implication there. Um, stuff like that. So stuff about, like, if you listen to any kind of, like, true crime stuff... Ernie, it's all about like psychoanalyzing the criminal mind and creating like a criminal profile of cheaters and shit like that. It's all about like what kind of personality or individual circumstances would a, would make a person want to do evil in the world, right? Like cheating is on the same spectrum of evil as just being a criminal as an adult. So there were there were even some papers that I read that tried to test and survey correlations between cheating and drug use. Right, which I mean, just just even asking that question as a research question, as the base for a paper, is just so evidently fraught with like problematic ideas that it's it's really wild to me. I mean, maybe that's just me going back and projecting my 2020s cultural bias on that time. But I, I would even think, even for that time, people the discourse around drug use should have given some people some pause before coming up with questions like that. So I want to quote from one paper that I think is representative of these viewpoints i will actually not just quote but just to like read extensively from one paper um and the title of that paper is cheating in college is for a career academic dishonesty in the 90s by a dude named stephen f davis and so in this paper and basically in a lot of other papers too the way they try to research cheating is they just send a survey an anonymous survey to a bunch of schools and you know they rely on the schools to give out these surveys to the students and then they return them anonymously anonymously so that no one gets in trouble that's basically what this guy did that's what the all the other guys i'm going to be reading about um did uh and so so he wrote a survey one of the very first questions on the survey he sent that he talks about in this paper is 
a question asking the students whether they thought it was, you know, quote unquote, wrong to cheat. Like even back then, I would feel like that that would be such a pointless question. Like almost no one feels like it's right to cheat naturally. You know, no one goes into college with just natural criminal inclination to cheat on tests and papers. Like, you know, just like no one naturally becomes a banker or an accountant and then they go on to do Enron scams or they direct financial policy at Lehman Brothers or some shit. Like, that's not, that's not like a inclination. That's, that behavior is externally incentivized. And I think all students either know that it's wrong and feel that it's wrong throughout their cheating. How deeply they feel that, obviously, that depends. Um, But I do think it's every student. Or they justify it enough to convince themselves um, that they can go through with it when they do try it, when they do end up deciding to cheat. But the need to justify cheating when a student cheats, that's also externally provided. The reason to ask this question about whether you think it's wrong to cheat at all the whole purpose of asking that question is to go down this line of thought of, you know, well, if they know what's wrong, why do they cheat? Why do they think it's okay? Like, you know, I mean, like, give me kind of, give me a break, really, give me a fucking break. Like, do we don't we live in society? Like, don't we understand why people do wrong things? Like, what? Like, what, dude? Come on. Um, moving on to a different part here. So this is a this this is Stephen F. Davis writing. One specific goal, quote, one specific goal of the second questionnaire was to investigate the frequency of cheating. Evaluation of repeat offenders yielded some rather disturbing data. In high school, the majority, 52% of those who cheated, were repeat offenders. The average number of offenses was 6.47. The figures are only slightly better when we consider repeat offenders in college. 48% of those who cheat in college do so on multiple occasions. The average number of offenses for collegiate repeat offenders is 4.25. A closer analysis of the multiple offenders provides a clue concerning the genesis of the collegiate repeat offender. Virtually all, 98.64% of the students who reported cheating on multiple occasions in college had also cheated on multiple occasions in high school. Of the students who reported cheating uh, only once in high school, only 24.36% reported cheating in college, and then no more than on one occasion of the students who did not cheat in high school only 1.51 percent reported cheating in college and then no more than on one occasion the message inherent in these results and their potential extrapolation to the future behavior are clear if you have paid close attention to these figures the answer is yes to two questions that may have occurred to you great writing by the way um quote whether it be in high school or in college women reported lower cheating rates than men while this difference has not always been statistically reliable on a sample by sample basis i am quite confident that the meta-analysis would yield a highly significant effect and uh, so on right so we can see right there you know we're doing repeat offender analysis here you know which should be setting up some big red flags it certainly does for me right you know just for related context like this paper i didn't i, did, I think i did kind of a bad job <laughs> introducing this paper uh this paper i think was published in 93 in march 93 and so in just a couple year like a year or two later honestly um or before uh, in the years before and since this paper was published, three strikes laws were becoming more popular across the United States. And um, it's not exactly the same rhetoric, but it's definitely a lot of like, we're, by, by, by examining the students kind of as criminals, we're catching a lot of like um, stray discourse from that conversation into, into this paper. 
and, and of course, you also saw there too, right? Just making this big difference between men and women who cheat. Very classic, like criminal analysis kind of stuff. And let me just give you one more example of this type of rhetoric that he's going on here. So on page nine, reading towards the end of page nine of this paper, to what extent do students fear being caught? Quote, our recent data indicates that of those students who reported cheating in college, less than 50% expressed concern about being detected. It is noteworthy that the majority, 63% of the students who expressed concern over detection, were those who reported cheating only on one occasion. Moreover, the fear of detection differed in intensity between one time and multiple offenders on a scale that ranged from minimally fearful 1 to very fearful 7, the average score of the multiple offender was 3.12, with the average score of the multiple, the single offenders was 5.87. So in sum, fewer multiple offenders fear being caught, and what they fear, what fear they have is less intent than that of the one-time offenders, unquote. So yeah, just more, more example of that kind of rhetoric, and of course, you know, again, uh, just this whole difference of like the fear of being caught, like, you know, being a career cheater versus just doing it once and like trying to make a significant difference between that. You know, it's all very uh, criminal psychology kind of stuff. But if you want like a clear example of looking at the student as a criminal, he does, Davis does get way worse than this. Reading from the top, I believe, of page 11. So, ha quote, having considered the prevalence of cheating and some of the causes and motivations for engaging in such behaviors, I felt it might be interesting to examine how this crime is being perpetrated. After all, if we are able to catch academic thieves, it will help us know, uh, it will help us know their modus operandi. So again, you could just, just let's listen to that fucking vocabulary, that fucking rhetoric. Like, I, I don't think I'm crazy here for going like holy shit that's just so psychotic like to me that's just so crazy like those are students man like have some control over yourself these aren't members of the fucking mafia or like of a fucking gang of a fucking organized you know, an organ an extremely sophisticated organized gang or something you know but like his tone throughout this is very much like he's examining the attitudes of street level arms dealers or some shit, and there it comes out very. It comes out very quick. It comes out very clearly, and he goes on like this. So on pages twelve and thirteen, so he 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 he's talking about like um, some interviews he gave with students. Well, not interviews. They were asked on the survey to describe how they cheated, and you could tell by the way I'm reading. I'm not terribly interested in like the survey itself or how he did it, just in like his rhetoric and like the way he talks about it and how he interprets his data. Um, and, and in one part of the surveys, he asked like the people who said yes, they cheated a lot to describe how they would cheat. He has like a neat little list here and I'm going to read it because I think it's funny. Um, but also, you know, we're going to examine more of it, like the way Davis looks at students like criminals. So quote, um, our respondents were asked to describe these other methods if they had been used. These answers provided some real food for thought. If we could only harness these creative energies in a more productive manner. So the list starts, one, quote, we worked out a system of hand and feet positions. The foot position or foot, foot mo movement theme was mentioned by several students, Davis writes in a note. Two, each corner of the desktop matched an answer, A, B, C, or D. We simply touched the corner we thought was the right answer. So hand signals were a favorite with several students, uh, Davis says in another note. Um, three, the teacher got the test from a book that was in the library. So everyone had the answers before the test was given. Terrible teacher. Oh, my God. 
uh, four, I stole a copy of the test and looked up the answer ahead of time and memorized them. This thing reappeared in a number of questions. That's not a theme. That's just... I don't, I don't know. Whatever. That's what. That's another Davis quote. Five. I hit a calculator down my pants. <laughs> Six. We traded papers during the test and comp- during the test and compared answers. Wow. What was the teacher doing? Um. Seven. Opened up my book and looked at the answers. A real sophisticated shit going on there. If only we could take that creativity and harness them in a more productive. Harness it in a more productive manner. Um. Here's an, here's one that's actually kind of good. Uh, eight. The answers were tape recorded before the test, and I just took my Walkman to class and listened to the answers be- during the test. Oh my god! I mean, man, you could just tell how technology snuck up on a bunch of teachers. R- like, man, they didn't. They wouldn't. Can you? Can you just imagine so- trying to do something like that today? No teacher would be fooled by that. Um. Anyway, nine. I had a small velcro. I had small velcro fasteners attached to my boots. I wore the answers on paper that had the velcro backs and attached them to my boots. To see the answers, all I had to do was cross my legs. That's actually pretty good. Um, ten. I've done everything from writing all the way up to my arm to having notes in a plastic bag inside my mouth. Eleven. I would make a paper flower, write notes on it, and then pin it on my blouse. Very cool. Uh, Twelve. One student fills in the fills in two Scantron answer sheets and passes one to a friend. I don't know. That seems logistically kind of inconvenient. Um, one student. No, no. Thirteen. I wrote the answers on my thigh and raised my skirt to <laughs> see them during the test. I mean, the, the age before, like we 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 would come to accept men. Uh, wearing skirts and transgender people, a women, a woman only, uh, a strategy. Sorry, sorry, guys. Um, Fourteen. I asked the last period students about the test. Yeah, har- let's harness that creativity, and <laughs> into like more productive activities. Um, <clears throat> and so Davis concludes this little list here. This uh, by saying, "quote This sampling of creative methodology indicates that faculty members may not be able to afford themselves the luxury of reading a book, writing, or grading papers." during an examination vigilance appears to be the key word here <clears throat> so um he notes before this section you might have actually kind of heard me heard me read a bit of it before i introduced the list he says before the list that these like these cute little like anecdotes of the way some of these students cheated these actually represent the least common forms of cheating on test so most students either use crypt notes or they copied off another paper 80% of the time. So non-collaborative uh, or nothing really sophisticated. So I do have to ask myself, like, what the fuck is the point of including, of listing these out then, of including this list here? So I, I know he says at the end, like, teachers must be vigilant. Like, but how are they going to, do you expect a teacher to look at, like, girls lifting their skirts and seeing if they wrote something on it? Or, like, checking their brooches to see if their ants or, like, their fucking mouths, their pants to see if they have their books or calculators there. Vigilant for what? Um, that's obvious. That's a ridiculous conclusion. It, so, to me, the only real point of this list of, and it, the point of his pithy conclusion here, it, it can only really be to gawk at the way students are resorting to passing tests in their classes. I mean, that's what we did. We had a good laugh. But... But to me, when I think about the time period, when I think about uh, Davis, this academic, he's he's a psychology, he's a psychologist, he's a psychology academic. I think that's the way to say it. Um, and his audience is, of course, other academics, other te- you know, other teachers. The only reason that those people, that Davis and those people, would gawk or 
uh, would gawk or the, the reason to make readers gawk at that is to invoke the emotional reaction of, oh my god, these students are more devious than I ever thought. Something needs to be done to combat these criminal masterminds. And that's what Davis is, like, that's what Davis more or less says after he's done in that conclusion I read there, right? And just to say it again, so this sampling of creative methodology indicates that faculty members may not be able to afford themselves the luxury of reading a book, writing reading papers during examination. Vigilance appears to be the key word here. Uh, the lame, very lame. Like, honestly, when I think about, like, making students take a test, which I never do, I never do that. But to the extent that I ever would, like, I th a big reason would be just to give myself some time. <laughs> to like catch up on like grades or some shit but like so you, a teacher can't even be able to relax during the test they always have to be policing people's skirts and pants uh dumb very lame um he does try to kind of preface the list i think i i read parts of it right the whole thing about like if we could only harness this energy for good instead of evil right as like a reason for having it but obviously that's a bullshit reason but if to even take like what he said there at face value right if only we could harness these creative energies in a more productive manner like uh, who the fuck do you think is responsible for that dude the teachers in the universities oh my god like holy shit like i i know it's the 90s and the conversation about designing better classroom practices and pedagogy is way different than it is now it's way different than even it they it would even be in like the 2000s but people back then had better ideas than 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 fucking test right about getting people's creative energies in a more productive manner you know we should be expecting more from these kinds of people from davis from people like davis right <clears throat> like this is oh my god this is so it's so limp this writing is so limp his reasoning is so ridiculous and it is all just meant to be like looking at students as suspiciously as humanly possible and and, and to go on on that theme, like he, Davis is also very casually dismissive of the students' opinions on all this, and even towards faculty opinions to the small extent that they're in the study. In a section called Discouraging Cheating in the Classroom, uh, he asks the students what their preferred modes of punishment and dealing with cheaters are. You know, to me, that's an extremely important question to ask students in terms of like, uh, like I think it's absolutely necessary to ask students about this if we're going to have this punishment relationship with the students. You know, students are a body of people that are punished, but they can't punish back. Like, the students can't collectively penalize the school for whatever reason in any kind of institutional way, right? I mean, obviously, you could strike, you could do collective action, but that's not going through an institution. It's not a legal framework um, in the same way that a university can punish a student for cheating or a school can, like, give a student detention or anything. And if you're not in favor of, like, that kind of relationship, right, if you're not in favor of the students having institutional power over the actions of administrators and teachers and the, the school itself, like, if that's something you don't want to happen, then I think it's important to involve the students in the process of punishment and informing the ways that they get punished. But Davis is not at all a guy who thinks like that. He does not go down this completely logical train of thought. So after list listing, like, I'm not going to read it because it's not that interesting, but he, he lists the preferences of the students, you know, the ways that they would like to be punished if they got caught cheating. And once he's done listing them, Davis says, 
Several of the quote several of the preferred deterrents, such as having separate forms of the te of the exam and separating the students by a desk, do have merit. Common sense also suggests that some of the less preferred methods might also prove to be effective. However, their implementation may be rather difficult. For example, students have a notorious dislike for all essay tests. Legitimate reasons for not preferring to have assigned seats and not wanting to leave one's belongings outside the classroom are less obvious. So you know, I'll just. Like I said, very dismissive of what the students think, right? He writes with this very obvious assumptions about the seriousness of cheating and what needs to be done about it, right? So just being like, there's no, there's no good reason to not want to leave your your backpack outside, your fucking yeah, your backpack, your bag outside of the fucking classroom because we're trying to catch cheaters here and that's what matters. And like, how about the how about the fucking students aren't kindergartners? How about that? How about respecting? Um, the fact that they're adults uh, and that they're not babies. I think that's a little bit more important. But he, he is assuming that nothing is more important, even if it means infantilizing and just surveilling the students like they're first graders, as long as it contributes to catching cheaters. And to me, the, inst the entire structure of the survey he sent and the paper he's writing based on it is constructed to support these assumptions about the seriousness of cheating and what needs to be done about it. Let me give you another example. And so this is the bottom of page 20. Quote, however, it was disheartening to find that the most popular quote unquote punishment, he puts punishment in scare quotes, um, was to tell the students to keep their eyes on their own paper. The efficacy of this approach certainly is debatable. Likewise, one might question the advisability of simply taking the test away and allowing the student to start over. Regrettably, over 20% of students endorsed these two options. More optimistically, another 20% of the students did, award, did endorse awarding a failing grade to someone who had been caught cheating. These two apparently divergent viewpoints may well represent the opinion of those who have and have not engaged in academically dishonest behavior respectively. So uh, the bad students don't agree with me, but the good students do agree with me is his basic point right there. That he's uh, covering up in all sorts of ridiculous language and uh, nonsense, just, just assumptions and nonsense and terrible rhetoric. Um, it's even more infuriating towards the end. Right. So in the in, in the inter before I go to the end of it, at the end of the paper, in the introduction to this paper, Davis references an earlier study he did where he asked the students why they cheated. And so, quote. Quote. Having established the fact that academic dishonesty is widespread and represents a major threat to the integrity of higher education, a consideration of the causes involved seems to be in order. Over 50 years ago, Drake, Drake 1941, proposed that stress and the pressure for good grades were important determinants for academic dishonesty. Reflecting the continued importance of these factors, Keller, 1976, reported that 69% of the students in his study cited pressure for good grades as a major reason for cheating. In more recent reports, Bayard in 1980 and Barnett and Dalton in 1981 indicated these pressures remain important. Our, more our most recent study also attempted to delineate the specific causes of academic dishonesty. The most frequently cited reason for cheating was, I do study, but cheat to enhance my scores. 29.75% of the respondents said that. Um, quote, my job cuts down on my study time, 14.28%. 
and, quote, usually don't study at 13.60%. Also, we're high on the list. I cheat so my GPA looks better to my prospective employers at 8.16%, and I feel pressure from parents to get good grades, so I cheat. That 6.80% is also, also receives substantial endorsement. A variety of other reasons such as, you know, pass the class, class is too hard, only if I'm not sure of my answers, if I blank out and someone's paper, someone else's paper is in clear sight, provide considerable food for thought and accounted for 18.36% of the reasons for cheating. The number of references to external causes and situations is noteworthy. Uh, situational factors also appear to have exacerbated the frequency of cheating. For example, the emergence of large crowded classes in which multiple choice tests are the preferred mode of evaluation has been found to be con- conducive to cheating. And he gets that from uh, Houston, 1976. The problems created by this situation are compounded by the lack of secretarial assistance for the preparation of alternate forms of examinations. The availability of computerized test banks, which offer instructors the ability to scramble the order of test questions, as well as the answers for individual questions, appears to offer potential relief from uh, for this particular problem. <clears throat> and so, uh, so uh, that that's a lot of okay, end quote. Yeah. <laughs> so that uh, that a lot of that are things that I let off in the introduction to this podcast podcast episode. Right, it even includes some things I didn't touch upon, things that happen in the classroom that aren't the students' fault um, that induce cheating. So he refer- he even references like class sizes in the advent of certain technologies as situational factors. So you can see here, the students are straight up telling him in his own survey, I got a job, I got future career prospects to worry about. I don't study, I can't study, I can't get the grades I want on my own. And, you know, what words does David have for all that? All those completely reasonable, understandable uh, motivations for cheating from people who otherwise wouldn't cheat if those pressures weren't there, presumably. Quote, clearly, Davis says, many of the students in our two studies do not have a well-developed, internalized sense of integrity, academic or otherwise. Hence, their behavior is directed to a great extent by external pressures. And a little further on, he goes, corroborating the importance of external agents Forsyth, Pope, and Macmillan in 1985 reported data pertaining to the attribution, attributional pff, analysis of, you gotta love these fucking words in these papers, uh, analysis of academic dishonesty. When they compared the casual inferences of cheaters and non-cheaters, they found that the external attributions of cheaters were significantly greater than those of non-cheaters. Equally relevant was the finding that the number of external attributions made by cheaters for the dishonest act was significantly greater than those made by a group of uninvolved observers. <laughs> Fuck, really? Wow. In short, in short, those who cheat are providing themselves with excuses, is his word, yeah, excuses for this type of behavior. While several of the preventative measures we can have considered may deter cheating on a situation-to-situation basis, our data also indicates that such measures will not succeed in the long run. Only when the students have developed a stronger commitment to the educational process and an internalized code of ethics which opposes cheating, will the problem have been dealt with effectively? So, like, go, go fuck yourself. That's all, That's my response to that. Go fuck yourself, for real. Like, he, Davis is absolutely and completely throwing all the concerns of the students about their limited time and energy, like their worries about future employment, their uh, 
pressures by their family, by expectations that society puts on them, everything into the fucking garbage and calling them excuses. Like, it doesn't even occur to him, you know, talking about uninvolved observers. It doesn't even occur to him that an uninvolved observer of cheating, like someone to whom cheating, like, isn't something that would occur to them to do, right? Because they're an uninvolved observer. They're not cheating. Like, that person doesn't have to go through the process of justifying it to themselves and making peace with it and thus would have less reason to think about why someone would cheat. But because they are uninvolved observers who wouldn't cheat anyway, the external pressures are probably, obviously, different, right? Like, you can apply that to literally any action. Like, you know, when I play a video game, I play Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, I lose and I get pissy. Like, someone, not involved observer would be looking at me like, what a fucking freak, what are you... (laughs) Why don't you calm the fuck down? And it's just like, you know, that when you're in the situation of choosing to play the video game and then you're losing and then all that kind of stuff, like, the situation is different than when you're just looking. So, of course, someone who's just looking at me getting pissy because I lost a video game, like, they're not going to have the imagination to understand why anyone would get pissy, right? Whereas people who do play the video game who aren't just uninvolved, they understand, like, the kinds of things that motivate you to have that kind of reaction, you know, and that's so obvious to me. And the fact, again, Davis here is just mocking that. He's just mocking the fact that, like, it, it, that people can experience different external pressures. And that is going to motivate them to do different things. Now, it's all just about, well, we need a good code of ethics that opposes cheating. We need to... Uh, in, in, we need to instill integrity in the students. Like total nonsense. Like that's 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 there's that is just a balloon filled with air of an idea. Like Davis is very clearly to me engulfed in just pure neoliberal ideology in this paper. The way he attributes what is clearly a social phenomenon to individual acts of deviancy and dishonor and the way he dismisses any non-individual factors of cheating as excuses. So this neoliberalism is even more obvious in the last paragraph of the entire study. It's great. He's <laughs> let me just let, let, yeah, I'm just going to read it here to you. Um, we begin with quote. We begin with the hypothesis, the hypothesis that a theory of understanding is needed. What constitutes understanding? According to Lovickson's model, there are six major components of understanding, and then there's six. I don't even, I don't know. Yeah, he just, there's six levels of understand. There's, I don't, I, I have never, I've never heard of this before. He just says, like, understanding is not rote memorization. Understanding is not learning lots of isolated facts. Understanding involves the creation of a personal, th- understanding involves perspective, uh, just uh, whatever, stuff like that. So uh, that's a theory of understanding, I guess. Such a theory of understanding, Davis says, is one that naturally resists cheating because cheating deprives individuals of opportunities to test their personal theories of understanding. Now let's see if we can't tie this model back to reality a bit and indicate its importance. If you are willing to assume that understanding is required for competence, then the following relations tend to flow naturally. Competence, in turn, is required for success. Success is required for self-reliance, and self-reliance is required for happiness. Undermining the basic building blocks of understanding through cheating weakens the entire chain of events that follows. If one personally subscribes to such a model and then teaches it with fervor to his or her students, I believe the result would be a decrease in academic dishonesty. So so nothing. That's, that's a whole lot of nothing. That's 
waffle. It's absolute waffle. Not even a waffle. It's it's fucking buttermilk. It's the, this opinion, this fucking conclusion has the same rigor and consistency as uncooked pancake batter. And again, just like neoliberal, just all all those solutions are just well. Teachers need to teach students about integrity. Uh, when you have this theory of understanding, then you want to test your personal achievements and you don't want to cheat. It's, oh my God. Just, uh, it's so, I don't even, Neil, I keep saying neoliberal. I, it's so, uh, so crooked. It's so stunted in terms of like the way, like the supposed psychology academic understands people. It's ridiculous. I said, like, so I said it was neoliberal, right? And I stick by that. I don't think that I don't think though that this discussion on cheating and academic dishonesty fits super neatly like on the left right spectrum. Um <clears throat> uh so I am a socialist. I believe in socialism as a social project. I believe in indigenous rights. I believe in land back. I believe in the advancement of black power as a necessary global movement. Uh you know, I believe in police abolition. I believe in dissolving the state and living in a society without it you know all that good stuff but i think that those of you who share those opinions and positions would probably think about my opinion on cheating so far my apologist opinion on it my dismissive opinion on it and you know you would go uh axel come on don't be fucking ridiculous cheating is just so obviously wrong and you're just being silly or contrarian trying to frame it as radical and leftist right and to that, I'll say, well, I, I haven't framed it as that. You know, so if that's what you're thinking, then, you know, you haven't been listening. But I'll also say that I do think there is a social critique of cheating and academic dishonesty, which I'll get to, probably not in this video, but we'll get into, like, real objections to cheating that aren't based on, like, ridiculous calls to morality and criminal psychology. Um, but... The flip side of that is that you can absolutely take a right-wing conservative framework to studying cheating and then come away with uh, right-wing conservative conclusions and then go on to form a right-wing conservative academic environment, right? Like, and, and what those right-wing conservative frameworks and conclusions and environments do is criminalize the student, whether they're cheating or not, or doing anything else or not, and create a very simplistic crime and punishment relationship with the teachers and with the schools that can only ever lead to a worse and less effective academic system, which it has, by the way, it already has, and which I hope to show in the next parts of this series. And that's what Davis's paper does here, you know, whether he knew it or not. I mean, as, as bad as his is, I mean, like, it's really repulsive. Honestly, it's really ridiculous. It's nonsensical. It's honestly not too different from how other papers write about it. And at this point, I have to ask these writers of the 90s, what is the crime here exactly? It, like, it's how is cheating crime, right? It's obviously not like murder or assault. Is it fraud? Like, wire fraud or some shit? The most common analogy I hear, I read... Um, is theft. So Davis makes that analogy and a bunch of others do. I won't do um I won't do this whole oh, this whole surgical operation on another paper like I did here for Davis's paper. But on this note, I do want to look at a different paper really quick. It's called a uh, 
crime in the classroom and economic analysis of undergraduate cheating behavior. Um, it's by, it's by three authors, uh, Douglas Bunn and two others. So yeah, (laughs) crime in the classroom. That's the title. So cheating is literally crime. Okay. So it even says, uh, quote, um, it is easy to draw an analogy between cheating in the classroom and the crime of theft. So yeah, yeah, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Uh, later, later it goes um, in the classroom. In quote, in the classroom, the professor, proctors, and fellow students act much like policemen, ready to apprehend violators. The cheating student is the criminal, taking information from illegal sources. End quote. So, beside the fact that you know, in nowhere in the paper. Is there any introspection about like uh, how problematic it is to just straight up call students criminals and teachers policemen and like their fellow students policemen, right? All that's ridiculous and fucked up. Uh, What I want to show is the last half of this sentence, taking information from illegal sources. Okay, so first of all, that isn't theft, right? That would be like like, like, like a totally different crime like insider trading or some shit um which also which i mean that's not a perfect analogy at all either and but, but think about it not to get too far away from not to digress too much but like think about it so the information itself isn't legal isn't illegal according to this sentence it's the source so we confer too that they would also say that the way that they got the information is also illegal why why would that be illegal? Um, let's take it. Let, let's do our own analogy here. Let's take drugs, for example. So depending on which drug you're talking about, it can be legal or illegal. So like fentanyl, to take a topical example, right? Um, fentanyl is legal to obtain as medication. You know, you can get patches, which I think most people, I think is the form of fentanyl most people are aware of. And they're even like uh, these lozenge, lollipop things you can you just press them against the inside of your cheek and you suck on it uh it's really wild uh and once you have it like it wouldn't be that hard to abuse it right like again we're the abuse of those patches are probably the way most people are familiar with it okay so that's totally legal right uh, getting that fentanyl in that way and then doing what you want with it to yourself that's totally legal but it's illegal to buy it off the street from like some undercover DEA agent, right? So the Fent isn't illegal. Having it isn't really illegal as long as it's in the right form. And like whether you abuse it or not, that's also not illegal. So it's the mechanism of getting it that's illegal. So like the specific way you got it could be illegal or not. So it's a construct, a const- an external construct makes it illegal. Right, because nothing changes about yourself or the fentanyl based on how you got the fentanyl. And if you're inclined to think socially and systemically, right, you you might wonder why, right? Like, why do those legal constructs exist? Well, do they actually work in terms of accomplishing what they set out to do? Are those constructs sensible and logical? Why? Why would someone in the first place want to buy fentanyl? Why is fentanyl something that needs to be bought in the first place? Why is it a commodity, you know, whether in cash or through insurance if you're getting it as medication? So, and a bunch of other questions, right? You could add, you just keep asking questions. But like, 
What all those questions have in common is they're all social questions. Because the illegality of fentanyl is a social question. Really, it's not a, a, the, a question of the fucking integrity of the, the, the person who has the fentanyl or the integrity of the fucking fentanyl itself. So let's bring this back. Cheating is punishable because an external construct exists that deems it punishable. The information isn't illegal. Knowing it isn't illegal. But the way you came to that knowledge is illegal is cheating. Right, A university construct makes it so in the same way that uh, a legal construct makes uh, certain, uh, certain mechanisms of obtaining fentanyl illegal. And so why does that construct exist? And if we were really to investigate it, we would have to include that it exists in order to compel students to take tests and write essays the right way. Quote unquote. And the reason we make them take tests and write essays in the first place is because they need a good grade in the class. And for the most part, I mean, sorry to change now, but for the most part still, that's how we measure, quote unquote, successful learning. And the reason why students need, need good grades is, you know, for all sorts of shitty reasons, right? And also because, like, no student uh, gets any choice in deciding whether this is the way they want to learn or be judged. Right, that's all been decided before they even enter the class. Uh, so any test, any essay, like any class, really, is a completely arbitrary and compulsory obstacle that stands in the way of the students being able to decide what they want to do with their own time. And any test, any essay, any class is imposed on them at the threat of punishment. So like all all that in the name of quote unquote successful learning, right? which we measure through grades, which, you know, we all know how ridiculous that is. So what can you say to all that except, like, fuck off, right? Fuck school. For real. It's so, it's such a mountain of horseshit, really. It's, it's a gigantic mountain of horse manure that every student is made to just climb and climb and climb until one day uh, they either get tired and they just sit where they're at or they find themselves on top of the shit mountain. That's all it is. That's all school is, really. Uh, but back to uh, back to a different point. Um, back to the article, right? So later in the crime in the classroom article, uh, the authors there do try to cogently explain why cheating is theft. You know, even though the authors themselves, they like they they say it isn't really like the, just a direct quote here says it. Quote, unlike the watch stolen from its owner, answers on exams are not taken from the owner, but only copied. Uh, the victim still has the answers. The cheating student is free writing on the answers of others, end quote. Okay, so like, <sighs> that's, that's still not theft, but, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, here's how they eventually fucking explain it. From the uh, quote, from the professor's point of view, the free writing being done by the cheater is a serious problem. The professor's goal is to produce knowledge, but knowledge will be underproduced in the presence of free writing. Students who successfully cheat can enjoy the benefits of high grades without actually studying and learning the material. Measures to prevent cheating reduce this free writing behavior. Uh, so yeah, I mean like, there's the free writing thing, first of all. Like, got free writing. I mean, even in, like, the literature of today, I don't see rhetoric like that. That's such fucking 90s discourse. Especially, like, again, 
you're racializing the students, you're calling them criminals, all that kind of stuff. That is such welfare discourse speak, right? Like that, that was that, that goes all the way back to Reagan in like the eighties. Just fucking awful framing, just awful word choice, whatever. Um, but like, if, if you're conscientious, that should all that should all strike you as immediately just loathsome. But let's look more closely though at the way they use produce in terms of like what that implies um to zoom out a bit to zoom out a bit theft in the end like under capitalism is taking capital it's taking property without going through the proper uh, capital exchange you know you're depriving someone of some means of production or some means of consumption so you didn't pay or work for it or give them something in return at all you know uh, excluding here in this in this discussion is like personal property, right? So like your your fucking shirt or a, a fucking watch, right? So like I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna say right now, knowledge is not personal property, okay? I'm just gonna categorically deny that right there. But let's 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 go further. So this the knowledge that the teacher is exchanging in the class. I mean, you can already see how fucking ridiculous this sounds it's so silly um is that that knowledge is that teacher's private property it's their capital um or let's steel man this analogy and say it's more like a a service right so their capacity to teach the class and have the student learn something is their capital uh that they are exchanging okay Uh, exchanging for what Right, the student obviously isn't paying them, like not directly anyway. Uh, are they being exchanged for good grades? So the students that failed didn't get a good service, or or those that passed but not as well as they expected. Like, would we say that they didn't get a good service? But then part of that is also like their own fault if they don't meet expectations, right? Which, if it's a capital exchange, like it's a, it's a consumer producer relationship, like. Would we then say that, you know, for example, a person who hires a carpet cleaner to clean their living room carpet, but like those cleaners can't get it completely clean, is part of that the person who hired them's fault, right? Like, is it is it the consumer's fault? And if you can think it is, like, what should happen then? Should they pay more to the cleaners? You know, you know what I mean? Like, what should happen there? So you see, it's so muddled that that's not a great analogy. It can't be the actual grades that's being exchanged here. Um, so the authors of this article put it as, quote, uh, without actually studying and learning the material. Right. Uh, so the obvious objection to that is that um, and uh, what they mean by that is like what's being exchanged is actual is the act of studying and learning the material right so the objection i would have to that is that not every student is equally capable of actually studying and learning the material you know no matter how good the teacher is for all sorts of reasons right we don't have to get into that there but like if we were to change the, this formulation and say that they need to put in an honest effort to exchange for the benefits of a high grade we have to assume a lot of tenuous things, right? We have to assume that the teacher, first of all, is even capable of quantifying honest effort into a good grade. Very questionable. Without bias, 
literally impossible and also fraught with invitations to be racist and sexist and etc and the teacher has to do all that at fair market value which like what would that even fucking mean in terms of like the value the the value of an a in a class right what is the fair market value of an a you know just again like I, I like i said at the beginning of this section here not every student is equally capable it would be like you know you have a marketplace where the teacher is selling their shit but and like you have the students come in every student comes in with different amounts of money because you know other conditions are different but and then like the teacher saying well you know i grade fairly because i'm selling my my pro my product at the same price to any to everybody so I'm not, I'm not, this class isn't biased against anybody. Everyone's being sold the same thing at the same price, which is, you know, that's not like that. That's, that's not the problem. The problem is not every student is equally capable of reaching that price. Right. So very silly, very silly, very stupid. And even if the analogy made sense, it still wouldn't be a fair exchange. And there would be all sorts of intent incentives to cheat, to steal in that sort of marketplace analogy. Right. And like just with like the like the criminal thing, an analogizing cheaters to criminals. So there is no introspection at all about how problematic it is to frame the student teacher relationship as a capital relationship, you know, a consumer relationship, however you want to call it. So not only is the student a criminal and the teacher a cop and the university of a justice system, the student is also a consumer who buys the product of the teacher who is like what the i don't know what the fuck who i guess the closest thing they'd be would be like a fucking an artisan vendor or some shit and the university is the marketplace like you know like what the what the fuck like you see how nonsense you have to you think like what kind of nonsense you have to think about once you start taking this academic dishonesty shit seriously like you see what a completely deleterious attitude you have to have towards a towards real learning and real education or to take this shit seriously like everything like honestly i was i'm just listening to myself talk it all sounds so ridiculous reading these articles they sound so silly and none of this has anything to do with like real education or really being a really good teacher. It's just this obsession with catching the crook and giving the students their fair market value. It's so ridiculous. And this is this, this type of fucking rhetoric is everywhere in the 90s. It's not just these two papers. It was everywhere in the decades before too. It was one of those things that everyone just sort of assumes about when they talk about this shit. It's like, you know, it's like thinking rich people deserve their money or that socialism doesn't work because the Soviet Union, like, fell and disintegrated or whatever. And it's a bunch of received ideas, quote-unquote, knowledge that have no real logical or empirical basis. So that's it for part one. Um, I'll be uploading part two. Should be only two parts, honestly. I really, I really went wild with like how much I wanted to say. But yeah, this is the end of part one of cheating in the '90s. Part two to be released pretty um, soon, within the next week or so. Um, keep on the lookout for that. Thanks again, and I'll see you later.